beautiful. We always have something to complain about. Awesome. My name is Evan, and I'm here to walk you guys a little bit deeper into a series we've been going through. Um, but before we get into that, I just kind of want to point out a couple things that we have going on that are encouraging you to engage with other people that belong to this church. Um, like Carrie said, in the handout, there's multiple ones listed, but I just wanted to point out two. Uh, first one, small groups are starting up June 5th, a chance to get together on a weekly basis in order to go deeper into what we're going to be studying as a church on Saturday nights. Uh, so each week it'll be a different topic, and I'll hand out verses ahead of time so that way you can explore them on your own and then get together and just get to know uh, some other people that are just as interested uh, with God as you are, that want to share life and fun, good, bad, all that stuff together. Uh, so if you've got any questions about that, ask me or Sarah Piosky's number is on there. Also, June 3rd, we're going to go hang out in the woods and have some fun. Um, it's, hopefully it'll be similar weather early morning, like 10 a.m. on Sunday. Just get out and play. And so a great chance to invite other people that like to get outdoors so that way they can kind of get to know more of who we are and what we're all about. Awesome. So we're coming to the end of like a three-month series where we've walked through the entire Old Testament, basically from Deuteronomy through the prophets. We've called it the character of God and the propensity of man. And this was a huge thing to take on in such a short amount of time, 1,500 years of history, like 36 books of the Bible. My hope with it, as Ben and Chris is, is that this just kind of whets your appetite to figure it out for yourself. The Bible is so accessible. If you're willing to put the time into it, to reading it, and then searching out resources to help you understand it, it's so accessible. That's why we have it. And with this series, we've been looking at the character of God and propensity of man. And if you read through Joshua, through First um, and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you'll see the character of God repeated over and over and over for yourself. So I really encourage you to take that time this summer, this next year, grab one of those reading plans, do something to get yourself in the Bible rather than having to rely upon somebody to bring you something 30 minutes a week. It's so minuscule. All right, let's pray real quick, and then we'll jump into it. God, we are here because we desire to know more of who you are. We desire to know more of how we should live this life. We come to you because you are the one who made us. You understand all things. And so we ask that you would give us some deeper wisdom today that we can apply to our lives that can make us, that can help us live the way that you designed us to live. Please bless this time. Amen. All right. So over the past 10 weeks, we've walked through a thousand years of Israelite history from the book of Joshua through the prophets, from them conquering the land of Canaan to being exiled from the promised land. Like I said, we've been focusing on the character of God and the propensity of man. We have seen a God who has given his people the opportunity to do great things, a God who built a beautiful and prosperous nation for his people, a God who stayed in their midst, giving them the ability to continually interact with him a God who placed the nation of Israel in the middle of a major trade route so that they could glorify him and show that he delights in blessing all people. But we've also seen the tendency of man to forget who God is, 
what he's done for them, and the blessings that he has promised. As a nation, Israel quickly forgot that what God had done for them in Egypt. Then they turned away from the one that had redeemed them from slavery and assimilated with the nations around them. Generation after generation rejected God and worshipped stones and pieces of wood. Because God gave Israel free will, we then saw God allow his people to be overtaken by their enemies. We saw a God that allowed Israel to experience the natural consequences of their choices. Reject your protector and be conquered by those stronger than you. We saw the nations of Assyria and Babylon defeat the Israelites, destroy their capitals, and haul away the survivors hundreds of miles away to foreign lands. You know, this seems like a logical ending point for God's relationship with Israel. He gave them endless opportunity and support to do amazing things, and they utterly rejected him, generation after generation. Therefore, they reaped the consequences of the decision that they had made. Time for God to move on. But that is not who God is. Throughout the thousand years of Israelite history, we saw a God that is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what Moses said in Exodus 34, 6. And we saw a God who lived up to that millennial after millennia. A God who continually redeemed his people from their own choices. And that is what we will see wraps up the Old Testament. The God of the Bible is a redeemer. We spend the last three weeks looking at the consequences of our choices and why we go through hardship which we'll dabble in a little bit tonight, but I want you to walk away with that phrase, if nothing else. The God of the Bible is a redeemer. So we're going to spend a little bit more time just kind of exploring the biblical narrative before we get into any application. So 70 years after Jerusalem was destroyed and the Babylonians took the Israelites captive, Persia conquers Babylon. And this is in all the history books. This is... is, uh, outside of the Bible as well, extra-biblical literature. In the first year of his reign, the king of Persia speaks out. Let's look at Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 36, 22 and 23. Last verses of 2 Chronicles. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in fulfillment of the, the word the Lord spoke by Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he sent a herald throughout all his kingdoms and declared in a written edict. edict. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So out of this decree, 50,000 people of Israel return to the dismantled city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah rebuilds the walls. Ezra comes in and teaches the people about the law and what God has called them to do. The Jews grow in number and in strength over a 400-year period. They are seldom free from the control of the nations of Persia, Greece, and Rome, and they are never brought back to their former state of glory. However, 400 years after the return from exile, God sends their Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for, the one that they've been reading about in the prophets, people like Isaiah, But Jesus did not come to conquer Rome and reinstate the kingdom of David and Solomon. He came to bring God's plan of spiritual redemption for all of humanity to a climax. 
Now, for the first century Jews, this did not make sense. It did not fit into their thoughts of what redemption should look like. They wanted God to return them to the golden years of national wealth and domination. But God had other plans for Israel, for them to be a conduit of his goodness being poured out on the entire world. So that's like 500 years of biblical history, biblical and extra-biblical history. There's a lot of forms of application we can pull from those 500 years. But what I'm going to do to kind of help us focus in is bring us to Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel was a prophet that was around during their exile. Ezekiel 47. And so we're going to kind of skip the middle section, um, but I'll kind of walk you through what we're looking at first. So starting in verse 1. Then he brought me back to the entrance of the temple. I guess a little context. So Ezekiel has been wrapped up in a vision by God. So God is taking him through, showing him how the temple will be restored and that God himself will enter into the temple. He left at the beginning of Ezekiel and now at the end of Ezekiel, God is returning in all his glory to the temple. Then he brought me back to the entrance of the temple. There water was flowing from below the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. And the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. So try to just get a picture of what's happening. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around by the outside of the outer gate that faced towards the east. And the water, that's the focus of this, was coming out of the south side. We're going to skip down a paragraph to the second part of verse 6. Then he led me back along the banks of the river. As I came back, I saw the bank of the river a great many trees on the one side and on the other. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah. Think about the desert of Arabia. And when it enters the sea, the sea of stagnant water, the water will become fresh. Wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish once these waters reach there. It will become fresh and everything will live where the river goes. People will stand fishing beside the sea from Engedi to Engalam. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of a great many kinds like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. On the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Let's take a little time to understand what we just read. So the river is flowing out of the temple of God, which means that the source of the river is God himself. As the river flows away from the temple, it goes into Arabah, which is a barren desert. Wherever the river goes, life follows. Animals flock towards it and live in it. Fishermen are provided for in great abundance. Trees whose leaves never wither and never cease bearing fruit grow on its banks. From these trees come food and medicinal leaves. The river provides life where there is no life. It creates resources, restoration, and beauty pretty obvious, but this metaphor speaks to who God is and what he provides for his people. You know, just three things. There's more, but one, he brings life. 
I'm going to give you a verse for each of these just to show the Bible reiterates it. And there's so many different verses that show that he brings life. John 1, 3, and 4. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. It's talking about Jesus. Second thing we see of God, he restores what is broken. 2 Corinthians 2, excuse me, 5, 17. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. And the third thing we see about God, he provides us with all that we need. Matthew 6, I kind of broke it up a little bit, but therefore I tell you, this is Jesus talking, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And he talks about the sparrows and the lilies, and then he comes down to this statement. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, everything we need, will be given to you as well. God is the source of goodness in this world. Without him, we have no good thing. All right, so let's move it more into application. Now that we understand the river, we'll read that middle section. Ezekiel 47, 3 through 6. And this is really what we're going to hone in on. Going on eastward with a cord in his hand, the man measured 1,000 cubits and then led me through the water. And it was ankle deep. He measured 1,000 and led me through the water and it was knee deep. He measured 1,000 and led me through the water and it was up to the waist. Again, he measured 1,000 and it was a river that I could not cross for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, mortal, have you seen this? Man, whenever they say that in the Bible, it's like, pay attention. Mortal, human, man, woman, have you seen what I just showed you? There's major significance here. So as Ezekiel is led away from the temple, the further he goes down the river, the deeper it gets, right? which makes sense. It goes ankle, knee, waist, and then overhead. For the Jews, the number 1,000 can be seen as symbolic for a complete number, a complete amount, especially in the prophetic writings. This means that to get to the deeper parts of the river of God, one has to walk great lengths. Remember, the river of God is a source of life. Without it, there is nothing good. The deeper you get into the river, the more life and goodness you will experience. All right. There's two different ways I want to specifically apply this. The first one's more of a macro form, big picture, and then the second one's more micro for the here and now. So the first one is looking at God's goodness being poured out on human history. Now, we live in a broken world. I think we can all say that's obvious. There are plenty of good things, but there is still pain and hardship. We, like the Jewish people, wonder why God won't restore us back to our state of glory what he had originally intended for us. Why doesn't God just do away with all the brokenness and give us only good? Why doesn't he hit the start button for the end time so that evil will be done away with and good will reign? Now, in the same way that it took Ezekiel complete amounts of distance to see the river of God get deeper, God's plan for total redemption of the earth takes a similar amount of time. After sin entered the world, God led mankind to ankle-deep water with his covenant with Abraham. Through that, we learn that in faith and faith alone, you will be made righteous. 
by redeeming Israel from bondage and placing them in the promised land, God brought humanity to knee-deep water. When Jesus came, taught truth, and died the sacrificial death for all man's souls, we entered waist-deep water. We now live in a time that some people call the age of tension, the time when light is fighting back against darkness. The Spirit of God lives in people who have trusted Jesus is the Son of God, and through them, the Spirit is bringing goodness directly into our worlds. But evil and brokenness still exist. Even though a person's soul has been reconciled to their Creator, they still deal with troubles. We still battle with our internal brokenness and the brokenness that other people bring upon us. But when the complete measure of time has passed, we will see Jesus come back. And when he does that, he will utterly defeat Satan and abolish the wickedness of man, and we will be plunged in over our heads. We will be fully immersed in life. We will swim in God's unending goodness. When that day comes, God will completely redeem all his people from the heartache and loss of this life. We will be restored to our intended state of glory. But until the complete measure of that time has passed, we will experience the consequences of our brokenness. Now, this is a really important dichotomy to grasp and then to hang on to. We have been spiritually redeemed, reunited with the one who made us, but we still deal with the imperfections of the world that we contaminated. Just because one places their faith in Jesus does not mean life will be perfect. But we have been given his spirit. God himself lives within us, and someday all pain will be gone. You guys understanding that dichotomy? It's where we live, and it's really important to take some time to think about that because it will have major effects upon the way you see life, both good and bad. As we wait for that time to pass, for all pain to be removed, we must remember who God is. Remember his eternal state, his immensity of wisdom, and the perfection of his plan and timing for humanity. And even more importantly, we must remember that God always stays true to what he has promised. He will make all things new. I love the way Peter puts it in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. That is not literal. Please do not try to figure out when Jesus is coming back based on that verse. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Speaking of the timing of God bringing Jesus back. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be dissolved. That's a big picture view of God's redemption of humanity, of this world. Now I want to focus in on us here and now, more of a micro form of application. As we live in the age of tension, we have the ability to be personally redeemed day after day. That's what the Bible shows us. God is a redeemer. We can experience it day after day. Even though the darkness still exists and the battle rages around us and within us, God can pour out his goodness on us now. 
For the followers of Jesus, the river of life is within us. Jesus puts it this way in John 7. On the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit which believers in him were to receive. For as yet there was no spirit because Jesus was not yet glorified. We have been given full access to God himself. There is nothing restricting that. But it is our choice if we wade deeper into the river. One of the foundational premises of the Bible in this life is that we have been given free will. It is our choice where we seek life from. We can pursue contentment and purpose from endless things. We've got popularity and pleasure, money, success, relationships, right? And the list goes on and on. Or we can seek peace and fulfillment from God. Like we already saw in Ezekiel's vision, God is the source of all life. From him alone comes what we truly seek. In order to experience more of God's goodness in our lives, we must go to the river. Once we are there, we must wade in deeper and deeper if we want to truly experience the fullness of his goodness here and now. In the same way that Ezekiel had to walk a full measure of distance to become more submerged, we must be willing to commit our time and our lives to God to become more surrounded by his redeeming power. Now, there's no formula in how to commit our time or lives to Jesus. Just like with people, every relationship is unique and tailor-made for the individuals involved. God made you with specific characteristics, approaches to connecting with people, and learning styles that are all your own. Keep rolling. But at the foundation of every meaningful relationship is a commitment of one's time, both physical and mental. When we want to get closer to God and experience more of his tangible goodness in the day-to-day of our lives, we must be willing to commit our mental and physical time to him. This comes in the form of setting aside time on a regular basis to focus your mental energy on God through prayer, meditation, study, getting quiet, intentional time day after day to still your mind and focus it in on your creator. It also comes in the form of committing our time to, get, to do whatever God has called us to do to love people well. Through a committed approach to seeking and obeying God both mentally and physically, we will begin to experience more of his goodness in our lives. But just like the Israelites, we won't necessarily experience his goodness in the way that we initially expected or desired. Just because we make God our complete priority doesn't mean that we will be removed from the struggles of this life. Those who commit their lives to God still battle with problems in relationships. Their cars and their houses break. Physical issues, addictions that just won't go away, financial struggles, right? And the hardships go on and on in different forms. But the more that one fixes their Focus on the source of life, the more love, joy, 
peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit. The more you fix your focus on God, the more of those you will experience. That's what the Bible promises will happen. Even as the brokenness of this world assaults you, the spirit within you will give you what you need to live the abundant life, a life full of contentment, purpose, genuine relationships, the deeper things that we all really desire. Now, a quick question. Why does God require a commitment of our time to experience more of his goodness? And I can tell you right off the bat, this has nothing to do with earning his love. His love for all of humanity is unwavering and does not come based on our actions. His love is an unearned gift. That's what it says cover to cover throughout the entire Bible. The reason that experiencing deeper levels of his goodness is contingent upon our commitment of our mental and physical time is because of the battle of influence we constantly face. We are surrounded by a culture that encourages us to live differently than we were created to live. Selfish pursuit is at the core of our culture's philosophy. We are taught to be self-reliant and to do whatever is best for us. Whenever the hardships of this life hit us in the forehead, we are overwhelmed by stress and anxiety. When a person sees themselves as the center of the universe, they are forced to rely on themselves when things fall apart, which will lead to fear and worry because we understand our incompleteness. But the approach of the Bible is one that is centered on God, that he is all-powerful and fully loving, that he created each individual for specific purposes, that he continually interacts with his creation in order to bring them through their suffering. Out of this philosophical lens comes better relationships, more fulfilling purposes for life, and our hardships are much easier to handle. Daily, we fight the battle of being influenced by our culture or God. The more time we commit to either one, the more they direct our thoughts and our emotions, which directs our actions. By committing more time to seeking God and obeying Him instead of our culture, the more we will experience a goodness that permeates our daily lives and overwhelms our struggles. Paul puts it this way in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, please, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, your mental and physical time, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, physical, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. The way that your mind is transformed is by presenting your bodies, your physical and your mental time to God. And through that, you will see what is good and acceptable and perfect and you will experience that goodness, his goodness poured upon you. Wherever you're at in your spiritual life, I promise you, you can wade deeper into God's goodness. If you were on the bank, up to your ankles, shins, knees, thighs, waist, chest, overhead, wherever you are at, you can always be more submerged in the life that God longs 
to bring you. Going deeper requires you to commit your life to the one that made you, to seek him on a regular basis and to be willing at time to move into the unknown, trusting that God will provide. Going deeper requires sacrifice. I think about that analogy of going into a rushing water. There's a lot of things there. Requires sacrifice, uncertainty, not knowing how things will roll out. But out of your sacrifice, you will gain the life that you truly desire. And we're going to take communion tonight. And communion is simply a tangible representation of Jesus' body, which was broken, his blood, which was spilled for the redemption of all mankind that desire. And there's so many different things, endless things that you can do in your mind while you take communion. I just encourage you tonight to think about the idea of committing your time mentally and physically to God. As you take the communion, as you bite into the bread and drink the juice, just think about how much God has given you and his desire and his love for you that's represented in that sacrifice. Thinking about all of the goodness that the creator of everything wants to give you. There's just no denying the amount of his love based on what Jesus came and did. And out of that understanding, think about what he desires to give you when you're willing to give. Um, good evening. Um, this is kind of a cool time of year. We, um, we are kind of looking at kids finishing a school year and getting ready for summer and then starting a new school year. And so we look for milestones in children's ministry and in family life. And, um, and so we look for this time where kids are finishing kindergarten and they're going into first grade. And the milestone for us isn't that they're finishing kindergarten and going into first grade, but we're giving kids... Uh, they're maybe for the first time their chapter Bible. And a chapter Bible is just a, it's not a picture Bible. It's a Bible that's got chapters and verses and, um, and it's divided that way because kids in first grade, they're learning to read, they're learning to navigate their Bibles and learn how to look up scripture on their own. And so it becomes just a fun way for us to um, bring moms and dads up and to partner with them in uh, doing the number one thing that we're about in children's ministry, which is helping moms and dads pass faith to their kids. And a huge part of that is learning how to use their Bible. So the Doyles are going to come up tonight with Addison. And Addison is finishing, she finished kindergarten. She'll be a, a big time first grader in the uh, in the fall. And so here's what we're going to do tonight. Uh, it's super low key. I don't, I'm not big on other people having to do public speaking because it freaks most people out. So we're not asking them to do that. What we are going to do though, is just together, give them a moment uh, for them to talk to Addison, to be able to present the Bible from mom and dad to Addison. And then we are all going to join together and pray uh, for this family. Okay. So we guys just do that. Yep, just just right there. I won't even look at you. It's all right. All right? And we'll just give them a moment, and then I'll close in a prayer.
you guys are going to love exploring that with her. And it's super fun. We're in the process, a three-year process of walking through um, the whole story of what God's telling in the Bible. And uh, we're two-thirds of the way through. And uh, this Bible kind of goes right along with that, complements it. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun for them to um, kind of walk through using that tool. So let's join together. Let's pray for the Doyles and the other families who have kindergartners moving to first grade. And uh, let's join with them. God, thank you so much. Thank you for the story that you tell in your word. Thank you for sharing every bit of it with us. God, you revealed yourself um, all through the Bible. You lay out your plan to bring us back to you. Father, we're so thankful that that's your plan. So thankful that you paid a high price in order to rescue us and to bring us um, back into your family. God, uh, we're praying for this family, the Doyles and others. Father, as they're looking for those opportunities to fulfill their commission that you've given them to pass their faith to their kids. So God, we're asking for peace. Uh, We're asking for patience. We're asking for wisdom. Um, For Sean and Kari, Father, as they're looking for those teachable moments with their kids to be able to plant those seeds of faith. And God, we're asking that you would water that, that you would bring other voices, that you would stir the Holy Spirit in these kids' lives, that they would be drawn into a, a personal relationship by faith in you. Father, we love you, and that's our desire tonight. We lift you high, and we continue to worship you even as we leave here. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. You guys have a great evening. Thank you.